The views expressed in the following podcast are not the opinions of our employers, staff, friends, family, or the bots we program to write the show. Especially the robots. We want nothing to do with this. Enjoy the show. So today, Tim, I thought we'd branch out a little bit, a little science fact or science present, rather than our little more uh, exciting but uh, uh, speculative science fiction or future endeavors. Well, that, that, that sounds interesting. What do you have in mind? Well, I really wanted to talk about real-time models. Incoming message from the Centers for Disease Control. Crap. I guess we can't do a podcast today. We'll just have to save this week's episode for another time. No, I thought we were done with this pandemic stuff. I'm vaccinated and everything. I know, but this is like another one. What other one? I've only heard of COVID. Urgent message from Health Canada. Message urgent de Santé Canada. What? Not, not me too. How is this possible? Well, in, in any case, since we're both exposed, I can still do the show. My name is Tim. I'm a data engineer and a technology enthusiast. And I'm Matthew, and I'm a data scientist and a Luddite. On this show, we are talking about two classic movies of pandemic infections and the future of disease management and quarantines. All this and more on today's episode of Kill All Humans. <laughs> Welcome to Kill All Humans, data and pop culture. On this show, two data nerds. Personally, I prefer the term professional data nerd. Fine. Two professional data nerds seek out data and pop culture wherever we can find it. TVs, movie, games, etc. And see what parallels we can draw to what's happening out there in the real world. At the end, we rate what we've watched for realism using our patent-pending, totally arbitrary Turing score system. On today's episode, we're talking about two movies this time, Outbreak and Contagion. In both, a plague is released upon the United States population. The first, from an illegally imported monkey. The second, from a pork dinner that ingested bat feces. Mmm, doesn't that sound yummy? I'll give you five bucks if you never say that again. (laughs) Deal. (laughs) Both spread rapidly and are extremely lethal. In Outbreak, the situation is resolved rapidly, but in Contagion, the disease goes on for months. Like, we have no idea what that's about. Social distancing, masking, regional quarantines become a daily part of life. Yeah, fun. Mm. Until a vaccine is developed that cures the disease and allows life to turn to normal. Well, presumably anyway. We're going to focus on Contagion for the bulk of our discussion and our touring rating. Yeah, so I'm really glad we're talking Contagion. Uh, so, so, I mean, obviously, we've been in this pandemic for uh, the, these past three two years. Oh, I was going to say this three past years. three years has been the longest seven years of my life. But, um, mm-hmm. you, you know, so, I mean, I think we're all very familiar with the pandemic. But if you haven't seen Contagion, it, it, it's, it's spooky how right a lot of it got uh, this 10 years ago, right down to how the disease entered our our ecosystem right it came from uh well we're we're still not 100% sure but really it's it's an animal disease that crossed over to humans largely well originally it was SARS so we do know yeah. a lot about this disease well, we know actually. about covid so it was viruses originally yeah SARS which did like the movie contagion had a 20% lethality rate and um did come out of china and then uh was relatively rapidly contained and um, went its way. And 
by going its way, it means it returned back to the animal population. And then eventually, after a very series of mutations, crossed back again to the human population. And this is actually very, very common, that a really nasty disease will come out of an animal, will be relatively, will do some damage, but then is relatively quickly contained, squashed out, but then goes back and becomes something worse. So interestingly enough, do you know how many people SARS killed? I, I remember being a low number because be, being yeah. Canadian, uh, Toronto especially was very was very um, very affected by it. Uh, along with, uh, I think it was Toronto was really the only major Western city outside of yeah, you know, uh, that was affected by it. It's really only contained to three three cities in China for in terms of major outbreaks. I mean, you have a few isolated cases otherwise, but in terms of major outbreaks, it was limited to three cities and maybe killed a few tens of thousands of people. Whereas COVID, which has a lethality rate of only about one and a half, not much worse than the flu, has now killed, become the fifth most uh, deadly pandemic in all time. Yes. And, and I think, too, is that this is where I, I go off on a bit of a rant there because, you know, people take uh, what we just said there and people say, oh, it's not much worse than the flu. They look at lethality ratings as being the only impact when it comes to health outcomes. But I mean, think about it this way, too. It's not a binary. It's not a light switch. You either die or you don't. There's things right. like how how many people are clogging up the ICUs, how many hospital beds do we have available, um, how many people are going to be suffering the long-term effects, long COVID, they're calling it. Uh, there's oh, and so the many. mental health effects of quarantine and the psychological harm, the damage to parents, the, the damage economy. to the economy. You know, COVID's killed almost a million people directly in the United States of America. That's phenomenal that's pretty yeah. much more than most wars that the u.s has been involved in and i would say that if uh if honestly covid looked the way that it did the disease looked in contagion i don't think they identified what kind of virus it was but they said it was mimicked encephalitis but if covid looked like that i guarantee you half this bs that circulated around it uh like if covid made you like collapse mm. in the street and have a seizure um, I, 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 I think there be. Tim, I think we were primed to basically write this thing off. I think that the desire to write this one off actually very much stems from a much more fundamental place than the nature of the disease. You think so? Even if it was that bad, I think people would have written it off. Yeah, because everything's a hoax. And uh, okay, so exactly. Yeah. So, so where I think the movie got one uh, of the many, many, many things that got right. I mean, obviously yeah. the the one thing minor quibbles with the movie, of course, Contagion is that the disease had a twenty per twenty twenty five percent lethality rating and an R score that was or an R not as it's called, uh, mm-hmm. which is the reproductive rate of the virus. Uh, about this, uh, actually, I think they said two for. Right. Reference Omicron variant of COVID had an R naught of almost four. So right. th- th- think let's, about let's take that. A pause for a there, Tim, before we go, before you complete your thought. When we want to characterize a pandemic, there are four attributes that we want to think about. We want to think about, first off, the lethality. What is the percentage chance that if you catch this bug, you're going to die? In contagion, that was like 20%. And for COVID, it's actually one and a half to 2%. It's, it's much different. You have a transmissibility number, which has to do with the rate of spreads and the odds that if you are in contact, if we were in the same room and I have the disease, what's the odds that I'm going to spread it to you? And this is uh, measured as an integer. One means basically it's not going to, it's not expansive. Anything less than one means the disease is kind of trickling out. Anything greater than one means the disease is spreading and increasing in terms of the number of people that it's going to affect, and that's called R-naught. In the movie, it was two. 
COVID has generally been around two, but Omicron, as you were about to say, was jumped up to a four. That's an incredibly transmissive virus for getting around. The last two that you want to think about are type of transmission, and there are three options here, fluid, aerosol, and airborne. Fluid diseases are basically ones like STDs, sexually Mm -hmm. transmitted diseases. You have to have direct fluid contact. HIV is a good example of this. And still, one of the most virulent plagues in human history that people don't think about. You have aerosol, which is basically what COVID was. means you need close contact, but you can get it from talking to somebody. And then finally, in contagion, it was airborne. Mm-hmm. This is um, has a direct impact. All th- you know, aerosol, you know, airborne means generally corresponds to a higher R not number, but not necessarily. But it means that the virus can survive a long time in the air. The last one, which is also really important when you want to think about characterizing a pandemic, is time to symptoms. How long does it take before the disease shows up? Now, generally, a disease with a high R not, or sorry, a disease with a high lethality. It's going to have a very short time to symptoms. SARS was like this. Um, Ebola SARS. is one like that. Yeah, Ebola. Yeah, exactly. You know, a disease with 20 to 30% lethality will generally present symptoms within a matter of hours. COVID could take anywhere up to two weeks. And this is also what made uh, the disease and contagion uh, a, a little not quite uh, right because no. of because of lethality was so high, but also had a high R naught, which is also not usually what we see with a lot of diseases. So Ebola, for example, um, I think it's about a five day five days of symptoms or something like that uh, has a very high lethality rate. But because diseases that present themselves quickly and kill their host quickly, they tend not to spread nearly as fast. Right, exactly. Uh, so, so this is why things like Ebola get, get got the public imagination. Because I remember this mm-hmm. big Ebola scare, I think, what, in 2016, 2017, something like that? Big, what? big, big Ebola scare. But the reality— nasty diseases, like yeah, yeah. good graphic symptoms that really scare people. COVID yeah. was like getting the flu, or at least people would say. Like, you couldn't come to point anything graphic and say, oh, that's disgusting. So the question is, why do we talk about these things in quarantines uh, or these um, – why do we talk about COVID and pandemics in terms of data? Because really what it is, as you're saying, is basically understanding what the underlying data is so we can make better healthcare decisions, but also talking about the other interesting things that go into it. So, for example – uh, how much toilet paper do we have in our strategic reserve? Uh, but it, it sounds funny, but like That's huge. No, how, no, no. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. Right. It's not, well, not toilet I mean, paper, but consumer goods, consumer staples. Right. Uh, how much food do we have? How much do we uh, hospital? So all these things that we don't necessarily think about day to day. Because if today you break your arm, you go to the hospital. Yeah, you may have a wait time. Yeah, you may not. But the concern you have isn't are there bandages available and is there a doctor available to see me? That's not a concern that we generally have pre-pandemic. Yeah, and let's let's take the subject of food. Let's take a city like New York or Toronto, just for example. How much food do you think they have? Like, if let's say we decide to quarantine one of one of these cities, hundred percent, like total lockdown. We call in the army. We shut this city down so no one's going in or out, Chinese style. Yeah, like they 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 can still do this. The Chinese government is still capable of doing this. We are not. We we are past the ability to quarantine a city in this way because our economy is not designed that way anymore. Yeah. For good reason. Like there's a reason why quarantines don't work well anymore. But how long do you think New York City would go for food? Like how long do you think the food would last? If I had to guess, 
if we yeah. had to do a, a firm lockdown, I'm going to guess, especially thanks to this little thing we call just in time uh, models of delivery and uh, manufacturing factor in this. Yes. Because yes, we do not the answer. <laughs> we do not keep stock. The answer is not very long. I, if, if it was more than a week or two, I would be shocked. I, I believe that it's down to two to three days. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Now, I was in the great blackout of the one in the 2000s. And it was very interesting. Like the first night, there was an absolute abundance of pizza. <laughs> you had pizza on every corner, but like for one night. And basically, the pizza oven stayed open because they were all, you know, wood burning, whatever. But then in 24 hours, you began to see, like the next day, you began to see massive shortages. Like already, just one day later, you know, the next morning, like grocery stores were sold out. Mm-hmm. Everyone, you know, suit supplies, restaurants were totally closed. The food shortage had already begun in less than 24 hours. And I think, too, what a lot of people don't uh, didn't get, but they've seen now firsthand, is yeah. that there's always this assumption in economics data, but not necessarily in any sort of, I would say, modern data science that people are always going to be perfectly rational actors that if you say that there's a limited number of toilet paper everyone's just going to take the amount of toilet paper they need and go home what they don't account for is yeah (laughs) people panic people uh men in black people are dumb dangerous panicking animals and you know it right um so, so, I, so I think uh, when we talk about data in the pandemic, it, it's not just necessarily the hard healthcare numbers, but again, it's the food or you also like uh, uh, if you had to evacuate an area to go somewhere else, like how do you evacuate? What are your routes you take? Like how does this work in a globally managed economy as, um, as you were pointing out as well that uh, where supply chains – and we have another recent example here. So in Canada, there was this big protest where they blocked the Ambassador Bridge where a quarter of all trade uh, crossed the border between – uh, between Detroit and Windsor, Ontario. And well, when they between, did that... Yeah, so between countries, you actually have a fairly limited number of roads. Between Canada and the U.S., I think the number is 159. Between yeah. Mexico and the U.S., it's about 50. That's probably the same number as the roads leading out of New York City. But you have to consider the fact that New York City is an island, or basically, if you count you know, Manhattan and Long Island, that part of it is an island. But... The problem is when you start looking at a place like a geography of, say, Illinois, you're starting to talk about 10,000 roads. And that becomes a huge problem when you start to think about how you're going to quarantine and how you're even, I mean, can you even begin to kind of control the flow of information in the economy? So, you know, all this stuff is, is becomes increasingly challenging. So speaking of challenging the flow of information, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what the challenges were. How come all that data we seem to get didn't always it wasn't always cracked up what we thought it would be after that we're going to talk about the turing score and uh away we go we'll see well, you in I a think we, we want to talk we want to get to the whole virtual quarantine thing too so don't forget about that tim we got a we got a lot after the break a lot after the break okay you're listening to kill all humans data and pop culture don't forget to like subscribe and leave us a review or a comment bonus points if you program a bot to write the review for you matthew you can't tell them that you'll get us delisted again why not we only want them to the bot to write one review yeah a thousand times Shh. Shh. 
And we're back. So once again, we are talking about data in a pandemic. And I love, love, love having a proper data engineering topic, such as <laughs> pandemic data reporting. Now, here's the thing. In the movie Contagion, there's this beautiful scene where they're saying, how come we're not getting good solid numbers out of this place? Can we trust the numbers? Well, they said in the US, we have 50 different healthcare systems from 50 different states. And my goodness, that is so true. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how come it's so hard getting solid data such as case numbers. So you have to rely on people that uh, aren't data professionals to accurately enter data into data systems that have been underfunded by design by the government because, frankly, uh, there's this mentality that's existed for a very long time, very old-fashioned IT-based mentality when it comes to data, that data is just an extension of IT, and IT is just a cost system which we need to minimize as humanly possible. Now, the private industry is caught up with this in the most part. If they're not, they're going to be dinosaurs very quickly, that data is actually profitable. Data is actually how you can make decisions, save money, and drive better outcomes. Uh, In most governments, though, especially in some, we'll say, uh, areas of the United States and Canada where I'm located – not so much. So rather than having an assumption that data is a privacy threat, not just a privacy issue, but a privacy threat. Yeah. If so we do a good job collecting data, then then that's going to turn into the government turning around and cracking down against us. And which is so weird because we're already collecting this data and frankly, not having a centralized, controlled mm. data access with proper restrictions on it is probably worse than the current system, which is uh, almost like uh, security through obscurity. It's like the old Apple thing. How come no viruses for Macs? Well, there are just there aren't enough Macs out there in the wild. The R not is too low, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) the pandemic term. So there is something better about Macs, but we're going to save that one for another episode. (laughs) Best computers money can buy. And there is the problem. So um, so the problem you have is that you have basically antiquated systems uh, that rely on so many human factors. And remember what we always say in engineering, garbage in, garbage out when it comes to data. So you don't have proper data pipelines put in to begin with. Now, when you have a pandemic that comes out, an immediate problem where we need to get data immediately, all of a sudden, all this infrastructure that was antiquated using old systems, using things that haven't worked properly ever, uh, they don't scale. They don't scale, and there aren't enough data professionals to jump in and actually start creating it. So the private industry or private citizens stepped in, uh, but unfortunately, what it leads to is a lack of information. And what we know from a pandemic, a lack of information can kill in two ways. One, it's going to give you improper information to make decisions. And two, your communication around that data can sometimes be contradictory, can sometimes be, oh, well, why can't they make up their mind? I don't know what they're saying anymore. So really, if I could just evangelize on this point, please hire proper data engineers. Listen to us when we say we are not a cost center. We are here to move your data efficiently. And that is my spiel, ladies and gentlemen. That was a very lovely rant. Thank you, Tim. I'm really glad you got that out of your system. Yep, I just need to get off my soapbox here. Okay. All right. There you go. But yep. Of course, the great Excel debacle in the UK should, should definitely fuel your anger. <sighs> yes. If yeah, you're using was, Excel as a pandemic reporting tool, especially if it, you have others. Yeah, well, yeah. Here was the best part about all this. They had SQL databases that they entered all the, the data into because they have a nationalized healthcare system in the UK. Yeah. So they actually had SQL databases. 
what they didn't have was the ability to transfer these information from the SQL databases to the central CDC system for the UK directly. So they would send the files from the SQL system to somebody who would then upload them into Excel and then would email them again to the people basically managing the disease. And, 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 and any data, any data <laughs> professional like a month out of school could have figured that out for them. That, that's what blew my mind. But again, they again, when you're in a pandemic, uh, the priority is always on, of course, how many nurses do we have? How many first responders? Absolutely human life. But how many human lives could have been saved or how better could the pandemic have been managed if we had our shit together? Pardon my language when yep. it comes to how we communicate about data. No, and no country got it 100% right. Some countries got it a bit better. But yeah, I one think you're going to talk. Close, and that's yeah, where I want to start talking. And yeah. I want to talk about South Korea. Like, and this is not a country that gets a lot of press. It's not one that's getting a lot of notice now. Um, most of the countries now that are getting a lot of notice for doing a good job managing the pandemic are islands, which has an obvious geographic advantage. But, but South Korea from the beginning did some very, very smart things. And they were somewhat heavy-handed, and they did have data engineering issues, and they did have other things. But basically, they had a 100% complete cell phone tracking network. And what that meant is you could track and monitor the movements of every one of their citizens in real time and then calculate exposure rates. Now, obviously, cell phones have a geography radius that uh, is wider than we might be find desirable. But the reality is that they could use cell phones to measure and monitor who have the disease when they test and then back up in time. And so this is going to be the quarantine system of the future. Because if mm -hmm. you think about, say, forget New York, but think about a city like Chicago, which is landlocked. There are thousands of roads leading into Chicago, thousands of ways to get in and out. If you go to Illinois, there are tens of thousands of ways to get in and out of that state. I mean, it's, it's basically... And given the interconnectedness economy, a true quarantine in the classical sense where you basically take the army out, surround a city, and prevent anyone from moving in and out is just not a, a feasible pop. Uh, uh, it's just not feasible anymore. So we're going to have to do this virtually. And what that means is we're going to have to monitor the movements of everyone according to their cell phone usage, which is the best available tool. And it's screwed, but it's imperfect. But the idea yeah. is that basically you look at somebody. And let's assume that person A has got COVID, but they don't know it. At some point in the future, they're going to test positive. So then we work backwards and we say, who all did they encounter? So those are your level one contacts, your N equals one. Yep. And you basically send a text message to all of them saying, like we had the beginning of the show, you need to quarantine. You are required to quarantine now for a specified period of time, which is based on the various characteristics of the disease as we put it through here. And, and I think to uh, to a lot of our listeners thinking, this sounds rather scary. There's a f couple things yeah. to consider here. One, the government kind of already has access to all this information. Oh, yeah. They're, they're they just have not access to all this data. The NSA feeds have it all. Uh, Canada is no different with CSIS. Every country already has this data. If you're thinking this is a data privacy nightmare, uh, like I'm going to go back to my previous point that it's probably better off that it's in one controlled system versus having multiple, multiple, multiple different systems and multiple points of failures that hackers can exploit. The other thing to keep in mind is you're still alive. This was a data privacy issue a generation ago when we started doing this. This goes back to like the 1990s. We've, the government's had this data for all the data they need for at least 30 years, and you haven't died. 
<laughs> Let's make that clear. You are yeah. not dead. If you are no. listening to this podcast, you are still alive, and it's okay that the government has this data. Well, okay, but but here's the thing. There, there's, there's still a philosophical argument to be had whether or not the government should have this data to begin oh, with. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, okay, so let's let's take take that Here's issue aside. Here's the really interesting philosophical argument, Tim. Do you want a computer monitoring your data, or do you want a human? So we have to track everyone's movements in the entire country to make this work. To actually have an effective quarantine in this day and age, what's better, a computer or a person? Uh, I saw the Forbin project, which we should talk about at some point. So I'm not so <laughs> sure. Uh, so so here's the thing: it, it depends. And this is this is it. You can't. The data person to me says, "Yep, let's let's have the let's have it as an automated system, provided right. provided that there's sufficient human oversight on the system, provided Absolutely. that it's provided that it's uh, subject to the same privacy laws that a human being would be subjected to." I have no issue with the computer because guess what? My banking, my digital behavior, everything is that. Uh-huh. Do, do you really think there's a human being saying, "You know what, Tim would like shoes," and pushing a shoe ad towards me? That, that's that's no, not no, how I it works today. I can promise you, a computer is doing that now. I write those programs that make a computer recommend shoes to you. So, so, so <laughs> we're already doing this, right? So, a computer's right. just going to make that a bit more efficient. However, as we've learned in the pandemic, it's not that you have to convince people uh, to, to to trust science. Uh, you have to convince people to trust science enough, you know? Right. So so it's like, how do you convince people that actually a computer would be better at this than a human being or convince people that actually you can obfuscate this data that only, only at certain layers is going to be exposed? Because there's an actual lot of smart thought that goes into building these data systems that the right. average person has no clue about. And you know what? I, why would they? And again, this and goes right back to, I mean, there's no reason for everybody to have this kind of understanding. And it goes right back to this idea. And again, this in society that COVID has really exposed how shockingly bad our science education system has gotten it is. In, in how, in how people act around things when, and and how don't... shockingly bad our pandemic management systems are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. let's say this thing had a lethality of 2 to 3%. You know, yeah. I mean, this would be terrible. I mean, it would rip through the hospitals. We would have been destroyed. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. really, like, you know. And 2 to 3% know, we, we think isn't... COVID was bad. I'm, I'm really worried about the next one, which is, like, it's the one that's going to be just a little bit worse. Well, on that happy note, how about we give this thing a Turing score? It's time for the Turing score. It is. All right, Tim. Uh, I guess since I uh, started this off, I'll go first. Given the present tense of this movie, I think it's safe to say we're re-expecting really high scores from today's bots. Um, I mean hosts. Um, so from uh, Matthew Bot, it's uh, it's very clear that the uh, creators of the movie did their homework. The agencies, the containment, the quarantine strategies, the focus on content- vaccination are all really good. There are a couple glaring issues. The first is that the disease is too lethal to spread as quickly as it did. I realize that sounds contradictory, but in a rapid lethal outbreak, traditional quarantine methods work much better. Secondly, an outbreak of the magnitude of Chicago and Boston means it's going to be 10 times worse than India and Sub-Saharan Africa. So with that, I have to give it a four and a half out of five. Tim, over to you. 
All right, so I'm very much the same uh, mindset as you that this movie actually got so much right. I feel like anything I'd say would be nitpicking. Yeah, the the R not uh, being accurate, but the R not wasn't accurate per the lethality of the virus. I mean, that would really have to change our understanding of uh, viral technologies. Uh, also, lots of other little there's other little things to quibble with. So not only the lethality of the virus, but also the vaccine distribution strategy didn't quite line up to what we had in mind. So for example, they showed random lottery. They didn't show that the production would scale up. Uh, I don't think we had any kidnapping of government officials until the virus cleared. But then again, this is a much more lethal virus. Um, but really, at the end of the day, so much was going right for this movie. I'm going to have to give it a four and a half out of five stars. It's only just going to knock half a point for the r uh, in versus lethality. But I mean, for, no, screw that. I'm giving this a five out of five. I mean, we have no idea <laughs> what would have happened if the virus had been way more lethal. So I'm going to give this a rare five out of five. Wow. All right. So that's that's it for today's episode. And honestly, we can talk on and on and on about this topic, especially because, right. again, this really goes to the heart of data in society. And just one little thing I want to leave everyone else with. Uh, trust data. But you know what? Always consider the source of the data, too. You know, we see online Facebook. Uh, we see through social media. We see a lot of frankly, bullshit when it comes to COVID and that sort of thing. So whenever you're looking at a source, especially when data, especially if it seems too good to be true or it seems to have a complete contradictory opinion, something like that, do what a good data scientist or data professional does. Examine the source, see where it's coming from, get some lineage on that data, as we say in data engineering. And you know what? I I think that's a really great point. You know, a lot of people think about values differently than they think about data. And, and I myself is one of them. I'm, I'm, you know, that, that we have our value systems, which are brought up from us and handed down to our parents and everything else. But, you know, stay true to those, stay true to your heritage and what you were brought up with in terms of the way you were asked to make value-based decisions, but trusting the data to guide you in those decisions, that's really important. And I think there's a real separation. Data is yeah. not going to replace your values. No. That's not going to happen. Data is not going to replace what you believe in. But we need to start trusting it if we want to get through the challenges of the next century. Exactly. And remember, the only thing that, can, that counters bad data is good data. So data disproves data or enforces data, just like science. But one thing we can always say is we can always bank on the utter fallibility of the system. Anyway, that's that's it for today's show. If you're enjoying this episode, make sure you like, subscribe, share. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, for Kill All Humans, I'm Tim. And I'm Matthew. And we'll see you next time. I think we just got to sneak some variation of that in from here on out. Totally. I think that is a great closing line. Man. So the really interesting thing that I never got to was basically how you decide the number and like how many layers of contacts you have to do to manage disease. And the number can be anywhere from one to infinity. And it all depends on... It's actually around three. Like you have to have at least three layers of virtual quarantine. I just think too that, uh, you know, even with like uh, virtual virtual quarantine, it still relies on that whole everyone in society being rational and cooperating with it. Like if we start getting random text messages saying you must quarantine now, as of right now, 
the mortality rate is fluctuating between 25 and 30 percent, depending upon underlying medical conditions, socioeconomic factors, nutrition, fresh water. With the new mutation, we are predicting an R naught of no less than four. And without a vaccine, we can anticipate that approximately one in 12 people on the planet will contract the disease. Get up, get